So I'd like to begin tonight um, with a story um, that I heard a number of years ago, read a number of years ago, um, from Thailand. And um, apparently in the 50s, um, in Bangkok, they were making a new uh, road through the, um, through the city, and so they had to um, move a monastery. And the monks were told that they'd have to move this huge clay Buddha that had been there for years and years. And so they got a crane, and they were, as they were moving the Buddha, it started to crack. So they stopped, and because it was raining, they covered it up with a big, big sheet. This was about 10-foot-tall Buddha. It was very large and very heavy. And in the night, the, um, one of the monks went to make sure it was okay and not being damaged by the weather. And as he looked under the big tarp, he saw a flash of gold um, shining through the crack. And so he got a chisel and he started to chip away at the clay. And of course, there was a pure gold Buddha underneath all the clay. And apparently the story was that several centuries before, when um, Burma had been invading what was then Siam, the monks had been afraid that their amazing treasure would be stolen, and so they covered it in clay. But then all the um, monks had unfortunately been killed in the invasion, and so their secret had lasted until the late 50s. Um, And now this 10-foot gold Buddha is in a monastery in Thailand. And a little bit what we've been doing these last number of days is uncovering our gold Buddha. We've been uncovering the inherent Buddha nature or that luminous mind, that, um, that awakened self. That's not um, some kind of foreign state that we've caught glimpses of, that awakened state that kind of sprouts up like a mushroom out of nowhere. It's actually our inherent state. Um, it's this luminous nature of mind that is a part of each of us. Um, the Pali word is tathagatagaba, that inherent um, true nature. And one of the things that happens as we have glimpses of this and more and more glimpses, we start to know and build confidence in our practice. But also, equally as well, what happens is as we leave retreat, the clay kind of starts to come back. And um, the other thing that we find is that it's not so easy to act from this Buddha nature. It's, we have glimpses of it, we have these wonderful insights, but then it's hard to translate that into our lives because the habit patterns are so strong. And um, the Buddha recognized this. And so he didn't just leave it a teaching insight and concentration practices because he saw that in order to live wisely in the world, it took more than just this practice. Um, I heard another story about a nun in a Thai monastery who had amazing powers of concentration, and she would sit for days at a time. But when she came out of her amazing states, she would come back into the community and be very impatient or judgmental and um, look down at all these lesser lesser beings. (laughs) And uh, 
was not very popular with the rest of the community. And so it's really important that we um, incorporate other practices to bring this alive. And the Buddha put a lot of emphasis on developing wise action, translating our awarenesses, our awakenings, our direct experience into how we live our lives. The first part of that was clear comprehension. That's this wise understanding that comes through our practice, that understands both the a whole situation internally, that's within us, and externally. It takes the entire context into view. And it sees the way we cause our own suffering and the way suffering is caused in the world. And it also sees how those habit patterns continue. It begins to just catch the beginnings of the habit patterns so that we can make clearer decisions about how we act in the world. But the other part that he added was clear comprehension of purpose. And that's sort of like wise intention. It connects to the motivation that Gil was talking about last night. What's our motivation? What's really our intention beneath the purposes that we have? Is it going to be skillful, beneficial, and helpful? And is it in line with our true value? And what are our true values anyway? And it's helpful to reflect on that. Um, The Buddha once um, was giving some advice to his son Rahula, and he said, there are three times one should consider the consequence of any action of body, speech, or mind, before, during, and after. (laughs) One should reflect thus, is what I'm about to do, what I'm currently doing, what I just did, for my own well-being and for the benefit of all of the others. And that's a tall order. So there's the level of will it be harmful or beneficial, and then there's the level is it, of is it in line with what I believe, what I hold to be true for me. And so... This can change from time to time, but it's helpful to keep reconnecting with that. And you may have got in touch with that a little last night when you were looking at what your intention might be for the year. So I'll invite you just to close your eyes for a moment and just allow to come into your awareness. What do I really want in my life? What do I really want in my life? What do I deeply value? What are the deepest values that I hold? And it's not about having a noble or a um, a noble purpose that you think you should have or the right kind of value. It's about just being honest and seeing what it is. And it can change from, it can change throughout our lives. Just to see without judgment. Because it helps to bring it into consciousness. Because usually we're not aware. And whether we're aware or not, it it affects the decisions that we make in our lives.
And even, you know, like um, preparing this talk tonight, thinking about what I was going to say, there was the motivation of um, what my deepest value is, is that we can all act from our true nature, that we can more and more realize that awakened gold Buddha and see the gold Buddha in each other and that we can go out and live that in the world. That's what I really want from this talk. But I found creeping in, wanting to add stories that would be entertaining, you know, or wanting to look good, or have the talk be a good talk. And so it was really useful to see how that crept in. You know, do I really want to include that? It's not actually in line with what I really want. And so when we're looking at the decisions that we make in our lives, it's very helpful to check in with our motivation. Because we can get caught. Sometimes the motivation is to look good, or to have approval, or to be right, or to do the right thing. We're afraid of making a mistake. And when we can check in with that, it really frees the energy up that we can get caught in when we're making decisions. And directly experiencing the moment of decision-making helps us see what it is that's going on. Is there fear here? Is there greed? Is there doubt? What is it that's going on for me right now? And that can help us clarify and make a wiser action. And it's not about judging it. It's about being clear and knowing what's going on. And the three aspects of mindfulness that help that are paying kind attention, being precise, being really honest. What is the motivation? Even if it's a rather ugly, greedy one, it's good to know that it's there. And then being open and knowing that it's just a mind state, it's not who I am, allowing that to move through. So when we can see both the unwholesome and the wholesome motivations clearly, there's much more of a chance of understanding and of moving to wiser action. But it's very difficult to act from um, our true values and from clear comprehension of purpose because the habit patterns are so strong. That habit energy is stronger than volition. And you've seen that this morning in the meditation where Gil had us looking at um, the bare experience and then the reaction to that. You see how quickly the reaction comes. Often it's not even conscious. That impulse that moves us towards something that we want or away from something that we don't want. Sometimes our impulse is in accord with our values. When we're sleepy, We usually, if we're really sleepy when we're driving, we'll usually pull over. Hopefully we will, (laughs) you know. Or there are certain times when it's obvious and it's in accord with our true value. But frequently we get pulled towards gratification. I was um, at a retreat center once that I often teach at, and the policy is that you really conserve water there. And um, it was very cold in the bathroom. The floor was stone and it was very cold. And staying in the hot shower was much more compelling 
And even though I knew, well, just one more minute, um, it was much more tempting to stay in the shower, and it was hard to overcome the um, desire to stay in there. And it's, it's a basic animal survival mechanism to move towards pleasant, and maybe move towards pleasant tasting solutions and away from unpleasant. An animal sees something and it says, yes, I can eat that. Yes, I can mate with that. Or maybe even both. (laughs) 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 And then it sees something unpleasant and it says, that's going to eat me. i got to get out of (laughs) here. So it's a basic survival mechanism. Um, (laughs) There was, uh, I was on the very first retreat they had at Spirit Rock, I sat, and there were a lot of wild turkeys around then, and I was doing walking meditation out there, and this whole group of wild turkeys came, you know, the male turkey with a bunch of um, younger turkeys, female turkeys, and the male turkey, um, it was a very sunny day, saw his reflection in these windows, and so he puffed himself up, and he got very big, and he went, bubble, 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 bubble. <laughs> and then he started charging against (laughs) because the other turkey in the mirror of course in the image it puffed itself up too so he ran towards the other turkey and of course the other turkey ran towards him (laughs) and he just got sort of even bigger and then he turned around and he started chasing after all the other turkeys and pecking at them because he was scared and he was angry you know that was the sort of hindbrain reaction when we're threatened we, we attack what's weaker. And, you know, we all laughed. Everyone who was walking laughed. And human beings have a cortex, which means that we have the potential for discriminating wisdom. So there's the possibility that when we get threatened or scared or anxious, that we, might, we have a choice to not go and yell or hit somebody weaker than us. So there's a possibility of wise action. But the habit patterns that are there are very strong. And it's mindfulness of the sensations that help us be aware of that. Mindfulness of sensations in the body help us recognize, oh, I'm getting angry, or I'm scared, or whatever it is. And there's that possibility of a moment of space before the habit pattern or the reaction to whatever it is takes over. And that mindfulness in that way prevents the habit energy from dominating. We go so fast in our lives that often it's really difficult to stop that. Work meditation is very useful for that because you start to see the way your habit energies operate in your lives. Um, I had a work meditation of wiping tables when I was at the Forest Refuge. And I saw that I would start planning how I could do it in the most efficient way (laughs) to get through the task quickly. You know, there was this leaning into the future and cutting corners. And I recognized it as something I do in a lot of my life. You know, I won't wait till I get to the end of the street to cross. I'll cross diagonally or whatever it is. There are certain ways that we rush through our lives. And mindfulness can help us pick up and see when those are. So along with discriminating wisdom and clear comprehension of purpose, it helps to have this commitment to keep coming back, 
to keep reconnecting. It's not enough just to have an insight once, as you know. But we just need to keep renewing that and keep reconnecting, just like you kept reconnecting with the breath. Or we kept telling you, be here, don't go anywhere, just to keep coming back into this moment and reconnecting in our lives when we get out there, as well as on retreat. And the more we can reconnect with our motivation and our purpose, the more it strengthens the possibility of acting from that place. And the more congruent we can become with what our values are. The more we follow the habit patterns of aversion and distraction, the more it strengthens that particular groove. And that becomes our way. Similarly, if we've grown up in an abusive environment and what we've heard is a lot of abuse, those are the kind of messages we keep giving ourselves. And that's what starts to become our way, like the wolves that John was talking about. Subconsciously, we're feeding the angry, hurtful wolf. And the Buddha saw this, and he saw that what the mind dwells upon frequently, that will become our way that will become our habit pattern. And so he taught the four wise efforts, and I mentioned them a little bit the other night. And there are four ways that we can use our effort. And the first two are guarding against unwholesome or unskillful mind states. So we watch out for them, and we try and prevent them from arising. And the second one is once you've got into one of those really difficult, unpleasant states, you recognize it and you let go of it or some way, in some way, get out of it. And the third one is beginning to intentionally develop skillful ones like loving-kindness and generosity um, and um, openness. And then the fourth one is to do things that maintain those states once they've arisen, those wholesome ones. Um, some, uh, some a year or so ago, I was on a retreat um, doing some loving-kindness practice, and I was putting attention on my heart center and um, just really exploring that and um, just putting attention. And for a moment, I had just a complete sort of feeling of opening, and it was though I... the the image or the sense of it was, I had a heart of gold. I have a heart of gold. And it felt just beautiful and wonderful, and just experiencing that inner goodness. And then after a few moments, it was all like all the darkness came back. And I had this image of, you know, oh, it's all covered up again. The whatever, the, all the ways, the obscurations, the shit is back there. And then the sense that I had was if I pulled on this blackness, it kept coming and coming and coming. And then I thought, well, why is it keeping on coming? You know, why is it endless? And then all of a sudden I got it. Oh, I'm putting it back in again. And it may sound very simple and obvious, but having the direct experience of how it was that I was reinforcing the negative mind states, reinforcing my own negative patterns was really helpful. Just seeing the ways that I did that was very freeing. And so if we can begin to... And so then it's possible to abandon it when you can begin to see how it is that you're 
um, feeding that particular mind state. So that's the abandoning. As soon as we notice we're caught in one of those particular mind states, whether it's self-judgment or anger or fear or whatever it is, worrying is another one. We can, we can see how worrying actually is not helpful. You know, we're, cre- we're imagining what might happen. Um, we're building up all these fears or whatever it is. Um, there's a story that I love um, of a little boy goes into the kitchen where his mother is cooking and he says, Mommy, Mommy, what would you do if you were surrounded by a big circle of hungry tigers? What would you do? And she says, I don't know what I would do. I'd be terrified. What would you do? And he says, I'd stop pretending. (laughs) And so it's abandoning (laughs) the unskillful mind state of all the stories, all the frightening stories that we've created, seeing that they're just um, ephemeral. (coughs) And the guarding is a little more difficult. Um, And... uh, a young friend of mine um, was wanting to do a little better in his studies, and he was addicted to watching TV at night, and especially when his parents went out, and even though he knew the homework was to be done and it was due tomorrow, it would not happen. And so finally, he figured out for himself that he had no control over whether he turned the TV on or not. And so he had a solution that if he gave the the cord to his parents when they went to work. He would not, you know, the cable or whatever, he'd not be able to turn the TV on. And so he would guard himself against that particular difficulty. And it worked. And so sometimes we have to get sneaky in helping ourselves not do some kind of addictive pattern when we recognize that that habit pattern is so strong that we can't control it without a little help. So each time that we directly experience how we're causing our own suffering and we're able to release it, it deepens a skillful pattern rather than an unskillful pattern. Each time that we're able to be with something really difficult, and you've seen this in your sittings, even if it's something like an itch or wanting the bell to ring, each time you're with it and being with the wanting or the aversion, We're training ourselves to embrace what's difficult, to embrace even the unbearable, to be able to be with it. And and that, whether it's uncertainty or fear or whatever it is, we're training ourselves to be with it, and that's what opens the door to the freedom from it. And it's really important, because when we start to be able to trust our own experience, to trust our own grief, to trust our own feelings of distress of the world, and actually allow those feelings, rather than moving into patterns of addiction, to hide or cover the feelings, that's when it's possible to transform them so that we can then act. If we bury our grief and our despair at what's happening in the world, in avoidance or denial in some way, it's still there underneath. And and it creates depression and like a freezing... Um, Gil was mentioning the other night um, this, um, the hormone oxytocin that's when it's released um, 
brings calmness. When an animal is um, really afraid and being chased, there's a lot of adrenaline released. And adrenaline um, suppresses oxytocin. And so that if that happens on an ongoing way, hypervigilance builds because there's no counterbalance. And one of the reasons, uh, ways they discovered this, that when an, um, an animal is about to have a baby, when it's going into labor, usually oxytocin is released and that's what facilitates the labor. But if you're an animal and about to give birth, you don't want to be doing that if something's chasing you. And so therefore, the oxytocin is suppressed and the ability to be calm and relaxed is also suppressed. And so the more that we can um, allow feelings and allow that level, allow ourselves to pass through that, the more it's possible to reach states of calm and openness. And the more we um, allow the adrenaline to build from all the input that comes in our environment, um, the more the hypervigilance builds. So, as we're um, as we're developing these effort, wise efforts, it really helps to um, maintain the subject of our meditation to really put our attention on what's happening right now, not just on retreat but in our lives, to keep on coming back to what's the truth in this moment, what's going on for me right now. And we do it over and over. We keep coming back into touch with reality, even though it's a demanding thing to do. This is what Lily Tomlin has to say. I made some studies, and reality is the leading cause of stress amongst those in touch with it. I can take it in small doses, but as a lifestyle, I found it too confining. It was just too needful. It expected me to be there for it all the time. And with all that I have to do, I had to let something go. (laughs) So what we're asking you to do is keep being in touch with reality. Keep coming back. Because that's the way in to our true nature, is to keep reconnecting, even when a lot of the impulses and stimuli are taking us out. And it does get easier because each mindful moment is a seed for another mindful moment, even if it's a difficult one. And the more and more that permeates our daily lives, the more flexible we we become and the less rigid that we are the more fluidly we're able to move through our lives. But it's helpful to also develop um, clear comprehension of suitability, knowing when it's suitable to to do a certain action. What's the suitable action in the range of possibilities of what's available to us? What's suitable in this particular moment? Um... I once was teaching a retreat and had a surgeon ask um, how could he bring mindfulness into the operating room, into his work. And um, <laughs> my, what, came, what came out of me before I had a chance to think about it? Well, you're not going to pick up the scalpel and go lifting, moving, cutting, oh, bleeding, 
Oh, <laughs> suturing. <laughs> no. So there's, there's a place for, um, for the level of mindfulness that we have on retreat. Uh, I was on retreat at IMS many years ago, and I was doing POTS. And those of you who do POTS after lunchtime know that there are a lot of POTS. And my partner, who was doing the POTS with me, was doing lifting, moving, <laughs> scrubbing. And it drove me crazy because there were all these POTS, and he was taking about you know five or ten minutes for each sort of movement around the pot. And so we need to know what's suitable in each moment. <laughs> you know, when we're, um, when we're in, you know, in line at the supermarket, it's not the time to gaze with, you know, sort of total mindfulness and presence into the eyes of the person who's exchanging your, you know, your groceries. And so it's, it's in, it's, and it's useful in other areas of our lives just to know what's a suitable action in this moment. So it's stopping and seeing, taking in context what's true for ourselves and what's true for the environment around us. And this is particularly true in wise speech. Sometimes what we have to say is true and it is kind and it might be useful, but it's just not the right time. When someone has just made a mistake or blown it in some way, it's not the right time to say, I told you so. (laughs) And it's that clear comprehension of what's suitable in this moment. How can I best support this? And the same with ourselves, being patient and kind with ourselves and knowing what's, what's suitable. And being in the present moment when we keep saying, be here, Um, be here now. That is also a suitability about that. It doesn't mean ignoring the past and um, ignoring the future. It doesn't mean being attached to the present moment so that we can't learn from past experiences or look into the future and see what the results of our action might be. We're not excluding the past and the future. So it's seeing what's suitable in this moment. What do I need to Um, take care of. So our experiences shape not just by patterns from past experiences, but what we're actually doing in this moment. How we're behaving right now can have have an effect on how the next moment um, will unfold. If we have made a mistake, for example, and we spend the next moment judging ourselves, that creates more painful feelings in the future moments. And so it's being able to see that and notice our responses to our actions in that way. So we sort of go back to the Buddha's advice to Rahula. Will what I'm about to do or say or think be of benefit to me and to others around me? It's a sort of simple, in-the-present karmic thing. Will it be of benefit? Even if it's simply understanding it in terms of cause and effect. If we can embrace the difficult parts of ourselves, if we can be kind to the wolf inside, then there's a possibility of having compassion more and more in our lives. 
we begin to move from separation into more a feeling of interconnectedness in the world. And so when we're not connected, we sort of see the world as out there, as something to exploit and fix and take things from and to be separate from. And one of the values of the experience of both emptiness and interconnectedness, having those insights and then realizing how we can bring them into our lives, is that we begin to see from the emptiness that things are not just mine. It's not my identity, my this, my that. And the interconnected part shows us that um, whatever we do affects all of the other beings. And so there's that sense of both not identifying, but also being interconnected. And that the independent nature isn't just this lovely philosophy, but um, it's important in our day-to-day lives. So that day-to-day interaction with each other, how we treat ourselves and each other, that itself becomes social action. Um, It's not some grand thing out, out there. It's something small that we're doing moment by moment in our lives. So clear comprehension of reality does show us that place where it's not about me and mine, and it shows us that interconnectedness as well. We talked about, um, we at, at the end of our evenings, giving merit, make, um, dedicating merit. And there's the um, idea in um, Buddhist philosophy of merit for good actions. Um, but it's a mistake to use it to strengthen the idea of self. There's not someone behind all our generous actions that's deserving of a gold star. <laughs> you know, it's or acquiring gold stars for each noble action. Um, because that's more a self-righteousness or comparing mind. It's more the notion of merit that is a profound understanding of interconnectedness, where, um, where we see that Whenever we share, it's bringing blessings to ourselves and to others around us. It's bringing happiness. That there's a feeling of open-heartedness and um, joy in both giving and receiving. And that's very different from the contraction around being the one who gives or being the noble one who does whatever it is. Um, In one of the uh, classes I was teaching, we were um, talking about this sense of just sharing appreciation and um, as a way of wise action, of just sharing um, very simple things. And um, one of the women in the course who was a single parent and had two children, she had um, got home from work and her daughter invite, had invited some friends for tea. And her first reaction was, I'm overwhelmed, I can't handle this, this is too much work. And she was just going to sort of fix them something hurriedly and then just go to her room. And she stopped for a moment and she sat down to um, and had tea with them. And she ended up having a really wonderful evening and really enjoying these, these girls and spending time hanging out with them. And so she remembered that one of the other 
one of the girl's mothers was also um, working, the sole supporter of her family because her husband was disabled and unable to work, and she had a hard life. And so she wrote her a, a letter and telling her how much fun it had been spending time with her daughter and what a joy this girl was and how she understood you know, how hard it was to be a single parent. And she mailed it off. And um, then she got a response about how it had made that woman's day. And this woman had just been so thrilled to get that letter. And so she got really excited. She said, oh, wow, this is wonderful. I feel great. And so when she went to work the next day, she was um, teaching a group of young people. And um, she's sort of asking them about mentors. Did they have any mentors in their lives? And several of them mentioned the same woman. And so she sat down at a computer and she emailed this woman and said, did you know that there are a lot of people who think of you as their mentor? And of course this woman had never known and she opened this email and was just really thrilled that um, someone had cared enough to tell her that she was appreciated. And so the, the person who was telling this story was really amazed at how quickly it spreads around and how much joy she felt from sharing her joy and seeing how it spread around. So our full presence, in a way, can be the greatest gift we can give to ourselves and each other. Just being present is a gift. Sitting down and being present with these other kids and really enjoying them was a gift to herself and to the others. But, as I said before, our habit patterns really get in the way and block our ability to um, act wisely or even to act at all. And they cause us suffering. And for some of us, one of the habit patterns we get caught by um, that prevents us from acting is having to get it right, is having to be enough or being attached to the outcome not wanting to act unless we know the outcome will be a certain way. Or that if the outcome doesn't, that we want doesn't come about, we get disheartened and give up. When we have to get it right, it makes decisions really painful because then we feel immobilized and we're afraid of making mistakes. We get caught in praise and blame and fame and disrepute and um, gain and loss. And what happens is it infers that we're not inherently okay. When we feel that we have to get it right and that we're not enough, unless we get it right, there's an inference that we're not actually okay unless we're getting it right. So our self-worth then is measured by how successful we are in the world or by how whatever we achieve or how well our desires are met. And it consumes a huge amount of energy, this having to meet this standard all the time. Clear comprehension of reality often shows that what's underneath getting it right is this feeling of inadequacy. And it also shows us that the getting it right is a mind state and that the sense of inadequacy is a mind state and that what's actually underneath the sense of inadequacy is the gold Buddha, in a way. That's really what's underneath. But we're looking out there, and we've been so trained in our society to measure success in terms of getting power 
or money or fame or something else, that we're constantly looking out here. And we forget that these are just mind states that are going by. So when we look closely, we see that that all those are masking the gold Buddha. They're part of the clay. That that purity of mind, that clear, luminous awareness, is there all the time. It's just masked when we believe the story that we have to become this or get that in order to be okay. So if we can stop in those moments and see that that's what we're doing, we're able to connect again with our own true nature. If we're able to just say sometimes for a moment, what story am I believing right now? It can really help us see where we've got caught. So acting wisely then comes from recognizing what's present. Some, an analogy that I find helpful um, is, th- is the sense of our mind being like the sky um, and that all these mind states are like birds flying through it so that there can be, um, I think it was um, Sean Salzberg used the, these words, there can be chattering parrots and hammering woodpeckers and soaring vultures that are waiting for us. <laughs> and all these different types of birds, and we can, get, we can fly off with them and believe that particular story. We can fly off with the bird of no good, or we can fly off with the bird of I'm the greatest. Whatever it is, we can get caught and miss that it's not our true nature. So acting wisely, as I said, comes from recognizing what's present. Oh, this is fear, or this is inadequacy or the energy, the bird of greed and um, attachment is here. I need to be careful and just allow this in my body for a little while until I'm able to act um, in a clearer way. And it also helps when we're in a really difficult place to be able to allow very difficult, painful feelings when we can recognize them as that and allow those feelings to move through so that we can come to a place of more compassion. Then we can connect with our enoughness and connect with our loving kindness. I was in Tibet last year um, for just over a month um, as part of a team of... um, healthcare workers who were um, going and staying at orphanages and monasteries and um, delivering primary care. And some of the places that we went to had no resources at all. And there was a lot that we saw that was really um, very, very upsetting for me. We would see people with TB that we didn't have the drugs for. We would see people that needed surgeries that we couldn't do anything about. And... um, On one particular day, I saw a young woman, um, and I'd seen a lot of people that day who I just felt a lot of pain about. There was one particular young woman, she was maybe about 16, and she had TB that had spread a lot throughout. It wasn't just that she had a cough. And so I knew that she was going to die. There was nothing that I could do about it. And um, I just felt really overwhelmed. And... uh, 
almost like I couldn't be with her. And so I just left the room for a few moments and I just cried. I just really cried. And then I was able to go back in and just sit with her, knowing the unbearableness that I couldn't fix it. And yet at the same time, just have enough clarity that I could connect with the divine human being that she was. And not just be seeing her as this unfixableness, but to really connect with her Buddha nature so that she could at least feel seen and loved and supported and not having someone see her with horror. And so there are moments in our lives when things are unbearable. And if we can just hold the unbearableness with compassion, even if it's just for a moment, it just frees up enough energy to be able to see clearly. Sometimes I um, have patients in my office who have things not to that degree, but they have things in their lives that are not fixable. They have chronic illnesses. They have no money. They have no resources. And they're coming to me with all these complaints. And I used to just feel like sinking when they came in. And I would get into this kind of trying to fix it. And of course it didn't work. And there would be this frustration. And then I came to a place where I began to see that what was really needed was just to sit there and witness and just allow, yeah, this is really unbearable. This is really hard. And what I found out was actually that was what they really needed was to be seen and validated. They knew I couldn't fix it. And somehow, in me doing that, all sorts of ideas, creative ideas would come into my mind about ways that I could help that had nothing to do with Western medicine, but were just simple, practical things in their lives. And I saw how, by me being caught in having an attachment to an outcome or an agenda that I'd be able to fix it in some way, there was no energy to creatively see how I might act. And sometimes we do that because there's so much contraction around what's difficult that there's no room for any kind of creative response. So I found that really helpful just for me to notice the contraction in my body and to be able to pick up as soon as that starts to happen, as soon as I start to shut down as soon as my heart starts to close because I can't, I feel like I can't bear it, to be able to um, pay attention to that. So clear comprehension of reality helped me see that where I was attached to an outcome and to be able to be with things the way they are. And also to, um, to, to fully get that I didn't have control somehow in some part of my brain I thought that I should be able to have control. I should be able to fix it. Or that it was up to me. Or that if I didn't I wasn't good enough or I wasn't getting it right. And we can do that in our lives. But when the energy is freed there's joy there. Even for a moment of connection in a difficult time there can be joy. Um, 
Some of you here I know are in work where you do work with people in difficulty. And when you're working with people who are dying, often there are moments of joy when there are moments of full presence and connection. So it really helps too when we don't get identified, when we don't have to become the one who fixes it or become the one um, who is the greatest or whatever it is. That not being identified is very freeing and really helpful. And it's also helpful when we get caught in comparing mind because that's another way that we really block our ability to act. Um, When we see our compare ourselves to others, One of the very first Buddhist women, Abhirupa Nanda, said, give up the tendency to compare yourself above, below, or equal to others. So in other words, stop comparing. (laughs) Comparing is so painful because it's endless. There'll always be someone who is better than or worse than. And when we compare ourselves even to the way our retreat was last time, Um, it can be painful. Or when we leave retreat to how we integrate or whatever it is, comparing is painful. And it's helpful just to bring that into our awareness so that we can begin to um, be a little free from that. Having to get it, having to, it's not only having to get it right that can be a problem, but it's it's attachment to our views, having to be right that can cause us um, difficulties, having to have it my way um, or that my side is the right side, my one is the correct one. Um, I really like this from um, Pema Chodron. She says, I try to practice what I preach. I'm not always that good at it, but I really do try. The other night, I was getting rigid, hard-hearted, close-minded, and fundamentalist about somebody else. And I remembered the expression that you can never hate somebody if you stand in their shoes. And right there on the spot, I I realized I was so angry at him because he was holding this rigid view. In that instant, I stood in his shoes and I thought, He's just as riled up about this as I am, and I just feel his righteousness and self his righteousness and self-righteousness and his closed-mindedness and stupidity. And then I thought, you know, look at me. I'm in exactly the same place. And the more I hold my view, the more polarized we will be, and it's just mirror images. Two people with closed minds and hard hearts who both think they're right, screaming at each other. It changed for me because I suddenly saw it from his side. And all that I saw as closed-minded, self-righteous, and ridiculous was exactly how he was seeing me. So it's being able to see ourselves with humor in that way as well. Not to be so attached to our views and to take it more lightly.
And as I said before, the Buddha recognized that it's really difficult to work with these habit patterns. It's not something that's easy when we leave the retreat and to begin to move out into the world, to act from our hearts. It's hard enough on retreat, and so it can get discouraging. But because the Buddha saw that, he developed the Eightfold Path and the Five Precepts, which um, you took last night. And the precepts are really a way of training ourselves to bring it into our lives. It's a conscious cultivating of what's wholesome. It's actually noticing the ways that we're not and encouraging the ways that we can. And I like to think of the precepts, I find it helpful um, to see them um, not as rigid commandments, but as trainings. And actually, what's even more helpful to me is rather than um, I take the training to refrain from harming, to say it in a positive way, like I undertake the training of compassionate action. So um, rather than not doing something, (laughs) to take on the idea of doing something. So it's looking for the positive. And I find that helps me because I tend to be um, self-judgmental. So it's encouraging that. And it's, um, it's seeing ways that we can act compassionately in the world. And for you, it can be as simple as tomorrow when you clean your rooms, thinking about the people who are coming to attend the retreat, arriving just as you arrived a week ago. They're arriving tomorrow night. And when they find a nice, clean room, it'll be a safe place to relax into. So it's not something that you're doing in a hurry to get out of the way so you can leave, but something that's bringing joy to the person who comes into your room and can go, ah, this, is, this has this energy. So it's like you're leaving behind supportive energy for them to continue their journey of practice. And that the ways that we leave this hall and the environment around us are a way of sharing to um, benefit the people who come after us. And so if we think about the second precept in the same way, it's a practice rather of um, not taking what's not freely given, more a practice of contentment, a practice of sharing. Can what I'm receiving be enough? Um, Michelle MacDonald um, said that she would wake up in the morning and just say, may what I receive today be enough. Just that gratitude for what we already have. And can this moment be enough? There's a little Mutz cartoon um, that I saw where two of the do- dogs asked, look at the other dog and they say, Stinky, what are you thankful for? And he says, this moment. And they look at him as though he's crazy and they say, no, really, what are you thankful for? And he says, this moment. And so it's just the appreciation of one moment after another. Can it be simple enough that we're contented with what we have rather than this constant need for more? 
And there's a relief from that, from not always having to follow our wanting. And with the third precept, um, honoring um, our relationships, taking care in our relationships, acting in ways that are respectful to each other. And the fourth precept, honoring each other in our speech. Um, someone once, one of the students once asked um, Suzuki Roshi what he thought of all his students had been practicing for so long and so many years. And he said, I think you're all enlightened until you open your mouths. <laughs> and so it's just as you begin to go out into speech in the world, connecting with your body, what's happening for me right now? Can I just stay in touch with my true nature and speak at the same time? Rather than going around like a little head on a stick, you know, not connected and not having control over what comes out. <coughs> and finally, the last precept is um, simply practicing caring for our bodies. We tend to go through our lives um, only taking care of our bodies when they start to fall apart, <coughs> not paying enough attention until they scream at us that something's wrong. So can we go through our lives taking wise action in that way, really taking care of our body, our heart, and our mind? So we're cultivating respect then. Respect, rather than having respect like it is in our culture, as I said before, for power or money or success, respect for each other, for life, for each being, no matter how they are or what state that they're in, but the equality of each of us, not having it de- respect being dependent on someone's status or whether they're good or bad at something. But that they're worthy of respect just by being. Respecting the reality that things are the way they are and that certain actions lead to suffering. And respecting our desire for true happiness. We all have that. And respecting our ability to do something about it. We also have that. Not settling for complacency. We do have the ability to keep coming back, to keep committing ourselves, to connect with our true nature. And respecting that this is a process and we're all at different places on the path so that we have patience with where we are. So in this way, we can both nourish our skillful acts and celebrate them, appreciate ourselves and appreciate those who've gone before us for all the um, wonderful things that they've done and not be discouraged by our mistakes. It's so easy to get caught in guilt or blaming and they're not useful emotions. if we cannot identify and become the one who made the mistake, it's such a freedom to just learn and have remorse for it, but not to identify with it. Then it's possible to be lighter in our lives when we're not caught in blame in that way.
So I was caught in a moment of decision about how to end it. I was caught in a moment of trying to get it right. <laughs> so what I wish for you is that you move out into your lives carrying with you in awareness the preciousness of the, <coughs> all the insights, all the connection, all the um, awareness that you've had of your true nature. And that you find ways of nourishing that and um, enabling that in your lives so that each of us can be a gift to each other and can encourage and support each other through whatever times we may face. So may we all grow in wisdom and understanding and bring that into action in our lives. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.